0: We are in Mark chapter 3. If you want to open up your copy of God's Word there, Mark 3 is where we are. I will put the scripture passages also on the screen for you, but certainly I encourage you to look at your copy of the Bible. If you're new to fellowship, we are studying through the Gospel of Mark currently. And we've made it to verse 7, so that's where I'll begin reading this morning. We'll take a look at this passage. Mark, the author of the gospel, writes these words. He says in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Up on the mountain, and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boenerges, that is, the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of God. So let's look back at verse 7 and begin to walk through this and and see what's happening here. It would seem that at the beginning of what we read just now with verse 7, Jesus is hoping to escape the crowds that are following him. That's his hope. He maybe wants a little time alone with his disciples, and we'll look to see who this group would have been made of here in just a moment. But if that was his goal, it doesn't work out so well for him. Uh, Mark tells us, that Jesus is being followed by a great crowd at this time. So we've talked about this. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but just so that you understand, when Mark is saying that Christ is followed, being followed by a great crowd, he's not talking in the same way. Like a performer would say, "Hey, you've been a great crowd tonight. Thanks a lot. you know? He's not saying that the crowd is marvelous or wonderful the greek word that mark uses is the word polis it's for it's up on the screen for you polis doesn't mean great in the sense of wonderful marvelous or fantastic but it means a great number this is an enormous crowd at this point that is following jesus mark still wants to paint this picture for us of the popularity of christ and this will be significant as we move further into the gospel But let me show you just, we'll just take a quick second here. Let me show you where this crowd is coming from because Mark takes the time in the text to describe where they are all coming from. So let's honor that and look at it. Is this crowd coming just from Galilee? Absolutely not. Galilee is where presently Christ's ministry is centered. And Mark does inform us that people from within Galilee are certainly part of the crowd they are certainly flocking to jesus because of the miracles that he's performing but there are also people coming from outside of galilee and this is important because it foreshadows much of the rest of the new testament as well as church history it foreshadows what is to come in this thing called the church that's going to be established. So where were they all coming from? Well, they were also coming from Judea in the south. They were coming from Jerusalem, the holy city. They were coming from Idumea, and this may be new to you, but Idumea is the deep south there. Uh, It's also called Edom in Scripture, and it references a region south of Judea that was settled by the Edomites. And so people are traveling all of that distance from the deep south right on up to Galilee where Christ is at this time. Where else are they coming from? They're coming from beyond the Jordan, right? So this is outside of that region of Galilee. This is the eastern side of the Jordan River. And if you can see that, I don't know if you can on the map behind me, Uh, but Decapolis is at the north, that's a major city. Perea is at the south, but people are coming from all throughout this area. And then Mark also tells us that people are coming from Tyre and Sidon. and these, of course, are two major cities at this time on the Mediterranean coast. It's north of Israel, it's modern-day Lebanon today. So what's the point? Why does Mark include all of this information? What does it convey? He wants us to know the impact that Jesus is having on this entire region. That word of him and what he's doing, and what he's capable of doing, is spreading throughout all of these areas, and people are putting their lives on hold, traveling the distance in order to be among this polis crowd, this enormous crowd that is flocking around him everywhere he goes. I think it's important because this, as I mentioned a second ago, really does foreshadow much of the New Testament that is to come as well as church history for the last 2,000 years. What do I mean by that? Well, this foreshadows what's happening right now in this early part of Christ's ministry. This foreshadows the Great Commission that Jesus is going to give after his resurrection, before his ascension, when he goes back to the Father. Jesus is going to gather his followers around him, and he is going to tell them, having gone into the world, if you get the Greek right, having gone into the world, make disciples. And so here we are today, church for instance, we are now in the world and our job is to make disciples. Put a period on that for a second, we'll come back to that at the end. But it foreshadows the Great Commission. It foreshadows the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. As what we will find at this point after the ascension, when the disciples are doing exactly what they were told to do, they're in Jerusalem and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come on them. The Holy Spirit comes and people in Jerusalem are there from all throughout the known world, throughout the Roman Empire, are in Jerusalem on that day. And they hear Peter preach... And the Word of God tells us in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 people convert, repent of their sins, turning from their sin and turning to Christ for salvation. And all of a sudden, this thing called the church goes from being, I don't know, maybe a few hundred people before that day to being 3,000 people who then return home taking this message of the gospel with them. So it foreshadows that. It foreshadows the missionary journeys of Paul and the other apostles as the 11, after Judas betrays Christ and leaves, is no longer among them as the other disciples go out and carry this message of the gospel to different regions. There's foreshadowing there. And again, as I've mentioned, it foreshadows many centuries of world missions In church history up to our present day people from all over the region all over this region were coming to Christ they were a part of the crowd but we need to unpack that a bit more as well they're hearing about Jesus they were joining the crowd Jews and Gentiles urban and rural ethnically diverse from both near and far, both the local person living in Capernaum and the foreigner who traveled 150, 200 miles back when you didn't have a car to help you out with that, to get near to Christ. Dr. William Lane talks about this idea, and he says, Jesus' own outreach within and beyond Palestine properly anticipates and authenticates so anticipates, that's foreshadowing, right? But it also authenticates the church's mission to the world. Brothers and sisters, our mission, I'm talking about us now, okay? Let's not leave, just leave this in the, the distant past, the biblical world of 2,000 years ago. But here we are, Fellowship Baptist, right now. Our mission is the glory of God everywhere, That's what we are to be about that's who we are that's 2,000 years of history we are not a social club we don't we're not a service agency we're not a community group we're not a business we're not any of those things we don't come together and develop a mission statement and say hey what do you guys want to be about I think we should be about this We have 2,000 years of history. We have this as our heritage, that the gospel would go forward to the world, that we here in East China would gather together and worship, and then we would go out to the world, and that we would send people out to the world, and that we would partner with people who have gone to the farthest reaches of the world. And so I say all this us to say, hey, we do a lot with world missions. Get ready for us to do a lot more. Because that is what we are to be about. Amen, church? This is who we are as an organization. This is what a church is. Well, this is really important. We need to allow Mark here to differentiate between two groups for us. So let's take a look at this real quick. We have the disciples and we have the great crowd. That's how he talks about them in the text. Look at it, right? The disciples and the great crowd. What's the difference? The disciples mentioned here in this passage probably reference many more people than just the 12. The 12 are going to be called here. We're we're going to get to that here in a minute. But when Mark uses the word, and the other gospel authors, when he uses the word disciple, sometimes he's referencing the 12, but sometimes he's referencing a much larger group of followers. The disciples, these are followers of Christ. It's a, lo- it's a larger group than the 12, but they're those people who are characterized by listening to the message and believing in the message that Jesus was teaching men women and children I would assume who were truly following Jesus where do I get that idea of kids being there do you remember the passage where they start kind of climbing up on his lap and the disciples are like trying to push him away and he's like no come on let them come this is great I don't know how many more children we have left in the room after they left for our children's mystery program. But if we do have any young people in here, teenagers, I I see teenagers, can I just say this to you? Absorb as much of the word of God as you possibly can at this point in your life. Teens in the room, young people in the room, get as much of God's word in here as possible. Can I give you a very practical reason why? It becomes so much harder when you get older. I didn't hear any amens on that. How many old folks like me would give testimony to the truth that as you get older, it gets harder to memorize God's Word? It gets harder to memorize anything. It's not just God's Word, but it gets harder to learn. I think probably most of the Scripture that I have committed to memory in my life, I probably memorized before I was 18. Most of it. Because now... I can read a passage and read a passage and read a passage and try to get it to stick. And it's, this is no longer like a sponge. This is like a rusty old trap now. Anybody with me today? You know, and so it's, it's, it's just harder. It's harder. So kids, take advantage of how God created your mind to be absorbent. And use these years of your life to let the word of God soak over you and get to know God's word in a meaningful way by memorizing, memorizing it, by meditating on it. This is what being a disciple is. A disciple is someone during Bible times and during today who sits at the feet of Jesus and listens and absorbs and takes it in. In order to then follow, to go out and to follow. Follow. How's that different than the crowd? Well, the crowd that is following Jesus, that's from all of these areas. And I'm sure there were some true disciples that came from a great distance as well. But the crowd that is coming from all of these areas, right? They're coming to be healed. They're coming to receive relief from suffering. They're coming to be helped in some way. They're coming because they want to see a miracle. Maybe for many of them, they have this idea of what it means, what a Messiah is, and maybe they're hoping that Jesus is going to overthrow the Romans. And so they're coming for that reason, but they have their own perception of who the Messiah is. And that's why they're flocking to Christ. But they're not coming to listen and to learn. Those who are coming to listen and to learn and then to actually follow Christ, those are disciples. The crowd has their own idea of what they want, and that's all they're interested in. I'll probably say it later, but lest I forget, because like I just said, this is no longer a sponge, but a steel, rusty trap. Let me say it now, too. Are you a part of the crowd, or are you a disciple? May we wrestle with that question, brothers and sisters. Are we among the crowd, or are we a disciple? Because there's a difference. The crowd did not understand the mission of Jesus, Dr. Ben Witherington writes this about it. He says, The crowd is not following Jesus as disciples. Rather, they are chasing after, tracking down Jesus. They seem to have a magical view of Jesus, believing if they just touch him, they will be well. But Jesus does not wish to be treated as some sort of reservoir of magical powers. Jesus isn't a magician, Jesus isn't interested in that, having people chase after him, track him down in order to get something from him. He's looking for disciples. He's looking for people who are teachable and who want to learn from him. We see in verse 9 that the crowd is so massive If you look at verse 9 with me, and wanting to be near him, that Jesus actually develops an escape plan. This is one of those humorous parts of the gospel. It's okay to laugh. He has an escape plan just in case they start pushing too much. He's healed many people by this time. His reputation has grown. People come with the hope of being healed, and they are just trying to get as close to him as possible. We see this in a more personal encounter in a different gospel where the the lady pushes through the crowd and just tries to touch the hem of his garment. And that is what Christ has seen happen, and so he's like, guys, get the boat ready because I don't know how this is all going to go down. And the crowd is just surging at him. I mean, picture the biggest rock concert you've ever been to and you're up near the stage and everybody's shoving and pushing and trying to get through. That's... That's what's happening here. We see in verse 11, this is so interesting, that those who are oppressed and possessed by demons also come. Why do they show up? Because it's really interesting what happens with the demons, but I I don't know how demon possession works or demon oppression works, but for some reason, people who are being oppressed and possessed by demons are a part of this crowd and they get near to Christ. However, the text implies that being near to Jesus terrifies them. Look what Mark writes in verses 11 through 12. I'll put it on the screen for you so you can see it. Mark says, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, the demons that were possessing and oppressing these people, When they saw him, these demonic beings, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. That's interesting. I think we need to talk about that. He strictly ordered them not to make him known. How do the demons respond to Jesus? They fall down before him. They know that they are absolutely no match for him. These foul and fallen spirits recognize the eternal Son of the living God when they see Him. I want you to think about this with me for just a minute. Remember, the angelic creation came first. There are two creations that we know of, ours and the one that came before us, the angel's. I don't want to get too heady with this, but I'm I'm just teaching Scripture here. The angelic creation came before our creation. We can piece that together from what the Bible says. These demonic beings that I'm talking about in this passage that are in the presence of Christ because they're possessing or oppressing a person, and they fall down and they say to him, you are the Son of God, would have known Jesus for a really long time. They knew who he was. These demons had sided with Satan in the great rebellion before the Garden of Eden. They knew exactly who Christ was. And when they came into the presence of Jesus, they knew they were in the presence of their creator. The creator that they had rejected long ago. And isn't it interesting that they declare truth in this moment? We would not debate their declaration, would we? We would agree with their words. And this isn't the only time. Mark records for us. I'll just stick to the gospel of Mark because there are, there are a couple other examples, right? in Mark's own gospel of when the demons identify Christ. They identify him in Mark chapter one, verse twenty four, as God's holy one. We would agree with that. In Mark chapter five, this is yet to come in our study, but verse seven, the demons call him the son of the most high God. We would agree with that. And here the demons say you are the son of God. In Mark chapter three and verse eleven. What do we do with this? I mean, I mean, think about it isn't isn't this good? Maybe Jesus converted the demons in this encounter. That's not what happens. The demons are not converted. They had made their decision long ago and their fate is sealed. We, we meaning mankind, humans, men, women, we need to learn from this. The demons had made their decision to follow Satan instead of El Shaddai long ago and their fate was sealed. One day, all of our fates will be sealed. That day has not come yet, but one day that will be the case. The brothers and sisters, the, because I assume, I'm just assuming, and, and maybe not, maybe it's not a good assumption, but I'm assuming most people in this room have trusted in Christ for their salvation. You've turned from your sin, you're trusting in Jesus to save you, and your fate is sealed in heaven. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and your eternity is assured for that reason. Amen? But think of it this way then. Our loved ones, our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers one day we'll be locked into a decision that they make about Christ. Not yet. We still live in a period of time where that hasn't happened yet. But one day, one day, that will be the case. The, peop- the fate of all people will be sealed for eternity. Well, the demons state truth about Jesus here but not out of hearts longing for truth. That's the distinction. The demons say what is true, but not from a heart that wants what is true. They've rejected the truth. There's no love in their proclamation here, only terror and dismay. They're stating what they know to be accurate, but they're terrified by it because they've rejected it, and they haven't chosen it. And how does Jesus respond to their words here? He orders them to stop. Why? Why does he do this? Why doesn't Jesus just let this ride? I mean, that could probably build a more credible following as well if you had supernatural beings giving declaration to who you are. I think a couple things are happening here. First of all, Jesus is again, as we've seen him do already, demonstrating his authority over the demonic realm. But he's also not interested in their endorsement of him. He has no desire to be endorsed by these spirits. Uh, Dr. Mark Strauss puts it this way. He says, the demons are inappropriate heralds of his person and mission. Remember that. We'll, we'll circle back on that in a moment. Because now we see Christ in our passage recruit a team. He does begin to recruit a team. Uh, Jim Collins, who wrote many several great business books, one of them was Good to Great, another was Built to Last... If anybody else reads business literature in here. uh, But Jim Collins would put it this way. Jesus got the right people on the bus at this point. He doesn't want the crowd. He doesn't want the demons. But he gets the people that he has called to be with him on the bus. And that's what we see begin to happen next. Uh, Let's look at verse 13 together. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Remember, Earlier, Jesus had tried to escape the crowd and to spend some time with his disciples by the sea. It didn't work out so well. He was unsuccessful at getting away. But now, Jesus and his disciples go up to the mountain. And it does seem like he's able to shake the crowd at this point. It's an interesting biblical study I won't get into right now. But if you're looking for kind of a neat Bible study, look at how the sea is used as an image throughout the Bible, and look at how the mountain is used as an image throughout the Bible. It's very interesting. Jesus takes his disciples to the sea, and the crowd flocks to him. They go to the mountain, and he's able to escape with them. Well, what does he do up on the mountain? What happens? Let's look at verses 14 through 15. Here he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles not coming to me. Apostolos is the Greek word we get apostle from, and it often in Scripture just means messenger, any messenger. But here is where the first time where we see it used as a classification of people, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. This is an office now that they're given. And so they're named apostles here, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Don't miss this. I'm going to say it one more time, just so we're all clear on this. Jesus didn't choose the great crowd. He could have. And had his desire been political, he would have gone with the great crowd, right? Had his desire been military, if the goal was to expel the evil Romans from Israel... And for Israel to once again be a political nation, he would have gone with the great crowd. More people, bigger army would make sense. Jesus doesn't choose the great crowd. And let me remind you, he didn't choose the supernatural. These demons who spoke truth about him are not the messengers that he wants. Who does Jesus choose? I love this about Scripture. Jesus chooses 12 ordinary men to join his revolution and what does he call them to do he called them to be with him i'm picturing simon the zealot who who here is watching the chosen on tv and broadcast okay good number of you i mean that, that creates a great image of what a zealot was if you're watching that bible tv series but This guy, Simon the Zealot, who had trained to fight, right? Because he was going to be a soldier and be a part of the Messiah's army to expel the Romans. And Simon the Zealot is called to be with Jesus. Really? You just want me to be with you? You don't want me to fight? But I have all these skills. I could be of much better service to you, Jesus, if you just give me a sword and a shield and let me add them. Jesus calls them just to be with him. They were called to be with Jesus, to be at his side, to learn from him. They would be an extension of him. They would do even greater things, Christ says. They would do even greater things than what he was doing. They would proclaim the message of the kingdom and walk in the identity and the authority Of the king himself. Mark tells us their names, and let's just go through these quickly. But Simon, we know him as Peter because that's the nickname that Jesus gives him. This comes from the Greek word petros, which means stone or rock. So his name's Simon, but Jesus calls him rock. That's going to be a name, as we'll see throughout our study, that Peter's going to have to begin to grow into. He's not much of a rock at first. Then there's two brothers, James and John, and Jesus calls them in Greek, it's Boenerges. It's the sons of thunder. And there's Andrew and Philip, there's Bartholomew. If you're doing gospel comparison work, in some gospels he's called Bartholomew, in others he's called Nathaniel. It's the same guy. Just in case that's ever confusing to you, one, one of those names might have been a surname. like a last name, or his dad's name. Matthew is the tax collector Levi from chapter 2. And then there's Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, who was ready to fight, and Jesus said, just be with me. And then there's Judas, who betrayed Christ. They were all called by Jesus to be with him and to do the same things that they saw him doing. Dr. Daniel Aiken says this, this group of men came from a variety of different backgrounds. If you know anything about the zealots and you know anything about the tax collectors, that would have been interesting, some of those early meetings. They came from a variety of different backgrounds. They had different passions, interests, agendas. However, the thing they had in common was Jesus. Jesus had called them out, committed himself to invest in them and used them to change the world. I would imagine that's true of us, that we probably come from a variety of different backgrounds. We may have even some competing and different ideas in this room about politics and how the world should function and family. Some of us may have grown up in Poverty, others may have grown up in affluence. Some were middle class in this room. Brothers and sisters, what do we all have in common? Jesus. Jesus has called us all to be with him. Well, let's wrap up. What can we learn from these verses this morning? I just want to very quickly suggest three ideas to you. Um, If you would consider yourself to be a disciple of Jesus, I think these are important. If you're still checking out Christianity and faith and you haven't made a decision yet, it's okay. Maybe this will help a little bit. But here are three ideas, real quick. First of all, disciples don't just recognize the greatness of Jesus. Now, make sure you pay attention to those words because disciples definitely do recognize the greatness of Jesus. They don't just recognize the greatness of Jesus. The crowd certainly recognized the greatness of Jesus. We've talked about that. Most of the crowd that surrounded Jesus during his ministry wanted to witness miracles. They wanted to be healed themselves. However, they become indifferent and even hostile once his teaching gets hard. That's to come. We're not there yet. But once the teaching gets difficult, this crowd leaves over and over again. And it's very possible that some of the same people that are in the crowd today will one day be standing on the side of the road shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! The demons certainly recognized the greatness of Jesus. The demons knew with certainty, I would say better than we do, that Jesus was the Son of God. And yet they still opposed and rejected him. And so the point I'm making is that recognizing the greatness of Jesus is not enough. Recognizing the greatness of Jesus Christ is not enough, friends. To be a disciple of Jesus, we must believe in Jesus and we must follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Let me start there because just in case there is maybe even one person in this room this morning or listening to us on Facebook Live or who watches this later that has not yet taken this step. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? We believe in Jesus when we turn from our sin and we trust in him alone to save us, amen? We believe in Jesus when we turn from our sin and we trust in him alone to save us, church. I'm, I'm emphasizing this point because it is very possible that there are people who maybe have thought they have done this or, or maybe as a child once prayed a prayer, but you are no, you're not seeing fruit in your life. You're not seeing that any change has happened that should give you cause for concern. Because once the Holy Spirit enters in, change will begin to happen. The characteristics of someone who has believed in Jesus, turned from sin, and is trusting alone in Jesus for their salvation, the characteristics that begin to appear in their lives are, are called the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These things begin to happen in our life. And we begin to have a desire for God's word. And we begin to have a desire for God's people. And, And we want to sin less and less, and we want to do what is right more and more. And if you're not seeing that, then could I suggest to you that maybe you haven't yet truly believed And so I put this in the present tense very intentionally. We believe in Jesus when we turn from our sin, not having just turned from sin, but continuing to turn from sin and trusting in him alone to save us. The question is not, did you once pray a prayer? The question is, are you presently trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation? I'm in no way suggesting that we can lose our salvation. I'm actually affirming that great doctrine of the faith, the perseverance of the saints. We Baptists have relabeled it eternal security. But when spoken of rightly and correctly, what it says is that those who have truly trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation will persevere to the end. They will grow in their faith in Christ. Are you trusting in Jesus? Do you know how much God loves you, how much he wants you to know him and to love him? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And do you believe that that, your sin separated you from God? All have sinned. The wages of sin is death. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again? God shows his love for us, Romans 5.8 says in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then, friend, have you turned from your sin? Have you repented what the word means. The Greek word is metanoia, a change of the mind. Have you changed your mind about your sin? Turning from it, turning to Christ, trusting in Jesus alone to save you. If so, the promise of John 1.12 is so real to you. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is who we are if we've trusted in Christ for our salvation. Second, disciples are called by Jesus to be with him. This is what comes out so clearly in the passage we studied this morning. Everything changes when you believe, and now you begin to follow. Just as Jesus called the 12 disciples to be with him on that hillside, he wants you to be with him. He wants you to know him. He wants you to follow him. Dr. R.C. Sproul writes this about this idea. He says, simply put, the invisible church, that's all of the believers. If you're not familiar with that phrase, the invisible church is a theological designation. All of the true believers across the globe throughout church history. The invisible church, the true church, is composed of those who are called by God, not only outwardly, but inwardly by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus calls someone to discipleship, he is calling that person to himself, to belong to him, to follow him, and to learn from him and of him. Faith moves us from outside Christ, from a state of separation from Christ, to union with him. We embrace him, and so we move into Christ. This is what Jesus was talking about to his disciples in John chapter 15 when he says, you must abide in me. You must abide in me. This is about relationship with Jesus. It's about being with him. And then I'll end with this. And this one scares me a bit, brothers and sisters, because I don't know that I see the majority of us doing this. And please, please take that how I mean it out of a heart of love that wants us to journey on this journey together with Christ, becoming mature in Christ. But I don't know that we have really realized this one yet. Disciples make disciples. And if you were to say, well, that's not my ministry. I'm just not an evangelist. I, I, I'm not good at that. I, don't, I, I just don't, you know, I want to be a Christian. I want to be a disciple, but I don't want to make disciples if I were being honest, and this would be one of those moments where I'll be honest, I don't know that that's a possibility. Because disciples make disciples. This is the Great Commission. I mean, could we just for a moment as we close church, dream about what could happen here at Fellowship over the next few years if if even a few dozen of us if, could I just dream with you and just ask if even just like a few dozen of us decide that we are really going to make this the goal of our lives, that, that we are really like seriously like we're like all in and we are we are going to commit To this idea that my understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that I'm going to go out and make disciples. I'm going to be quick to speak of him and to share him with the people I know and love. And, And then when they do, and I believe they will, because I've watched it, when they do come to Christ and put their trust in him i know that my job's not done in that moment but then i'm really committed because now there's been a spiritual birth that's just happened and i'm a spiritual parent to that new baby in christ and now i have a responsibility to grow that child into a mature disciple of jesus christ anybody with me today I mean, look, if I'm only speaking to 10 of you in the room, it's worth it right now. Because if they're, they're, well, 12, Jesus did it with 12, and one didn't turn out so well, right? So if even like 11 of us said this is what we're going to give our lives to for the next 10 years here at Fellowship, I don't think we have any conception of what could happen here. In this tremendous book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, Dr. Robert Coleman, I promise this is my last quote, (laughs) Dr. Robert Coleman writes this. He says, Jesus had no formal school, no seminaries. (gasps) All my professors would be aghast right now no outline course of study, no periodic membership classes in which he enrolled his followers. Amazing as it may seem, all Jesus did to teach these men his way was to draw them close to himself. He was his own school and curriculum. The disciples watched Jesus. They learned from Jesus. And then they did what they saw Jesus doing. They began to make disciples. They had been made into a disciple. Now they were going to go out and make disciples. And then those disciples were going to go out and make disciples. And guess what? Those disciples were going to go out and make disciples. And it happened over and over again for the next 2,000 years. And brothers and sisters, the true church by the will of the Father, led by the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, has always been an unstoppable force in this world. The problem is, I don't know that most of us have experienced this. But the true church, the true church, has always been an unstoppable force in the world. Can I say selfishly right now, I would love to be a part of this one time in my life before I go home to meet Jesus. Anybody else? Let me see your hand. Anybody else say, I would love to be a part of what we're talking about at least once. May God so move here in that way. You bow your heads and close your eyes, please. Worship team, come on up. Help me out up here. I mean, as they come, let me just ask you could it really be that simple? Could it really be as simple as just doing what Jesus showed us to do? I mean, He did. He gave us a model to follow. Is it possible that we have made this movement? that so many of us have given our lives to. We've been a part of this. I've been a part of this thing called the church for 40 years. And I think at times it's possible that we've just made it way too complicated. What if we just, for a season of time, focused on his plan and began to really invest in making disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples? What if a large group of us Revived by the Holy Spirit. Revival. It's a word we don't use much anymore, sadly, in the church. But what if a large group of us all of a sudden sprung to new life because of the Holy Spirit filling us in such a way that we began to surrender lesser things in our lives and we gave this next season of life to this mission? What would happen here? I'd love to find out. I would love to find out what would occur in this fellowship. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask you to come. Holy Spirit, come and fall on us. Holy Spirit, come and fall on us. Let your fire fall and consume our sacrifice of praise. God, would you show us who you are? would you fill our hearts in such a way that we would be done with lesser things and that we would be fully committed to the mission that you have for us here. We know, God, that as we work towards your glory throughout the world, that we will also experience the most abundant life we've ever known. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you, God, for entrusting this mission to us. May we be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.